Before we uh, open up the Word, I wanted to make a couple notations in your bulletin there that they're noteworthy. Uh, the first is uh, at the bottom of your bulletin there. It's a mission spotlight about Pastor Fred Eaton and their uh, church out in Saurita, Arizona. Those of you that know Fred, uh, many years ago he was the associate pastor here at Coast Bible. And uh, about seven years ago he went out to plant a church in the desert of Arizona. And sure enough, they've got a brand new church building that they just dedicated last Sunday. And there you see a picture of some really uh, dear, dear friends and some from uh, Coast and others that are old friends of Coast. And uh, it was a really great day, I'm told. But I encourage you to, to uh, uh, send a note of encouragement to Pastor Fred and Susan. Their church is on the move. And God is doing great things out there in Sourita, Arizona. And Coast has had uh, a small, small but, but wonderful part of that. And so we are, we are proud of Pastor Fred and Susan and of all that they've accomplished out there. And we're wishing God's best on their continued uh, future as a church. One other noteworthy item is this. Uh, I'd rather you not read it while I'm preaching, but if you want to read it afterwards, that's fine. Uh, if I get boring, go ahead and pull this out, all right? You just kind of waved in the air, like, come on, Neil. Uh, no, Asia Bibi is uh, a persecuted Christian that we've had in our bulletin now for four years. Four years in the back of our bulletin. This tells the story of her wrongful arrest and imprisonment in uh, Pakistan. I encourage you, after the message, to go back and read it. Uh, you'll be amazed at just what is happening around the world. And let this story be, for you, a microcosm of what is happening in places like Syria right now. Just be aware of what God is doing, both the good things, the blessings, what he's doing in Arizona, and also the things that are difficult, like what's happening with our, our persecuted sister in Christ, Asia Bibi. Would you please stand with me and we'll uh, go before the Lord in prayer? Let's, uh, let's lift our eyes to him. Heavenly Father, O oh God, we acknowledge that you are the Almighty King. You are the God of all the universe. You are our creator, you are the sustainer, you are our king, and you are our judge. And all that we have is in you. Both the blessings, the good things that come our way, and also the difficulty that, ha that falls before us, Lord. None of it happens without your permission, without your allowance. So, Lord, we recognize you in the good times and the bad. We celebrate with Pastor Fred and Susan in Arizona. Lord, it's wonderful to know that there's a like-minded, grace-based, Bible-teaching church in Sourita, Arizona that's doing great work. We're asking your blessings upon them. And, our Lord, our hearts go up to you during the hard times when we see uh, a fellow sister in Christ whom we do not know, but we know a little of her story. And God, uh, would, we're asking you to bless Asia Bibi. Lord, she, she has, uh, I'm told, she's ill right now in prison in Pakistan. We're asking you, God, to work a miracle, to bring about her release, to continue to raise the stakes, Lord, for all those Christians who are persecuted around the world. Would you raise the stakes? Would you raise the awareness of the church 
that is tormented and harassed and imprisoned and even executed for their faith? And would you make us, as Western American uh, comfortable Christians, would you use those moments to, to stir us and to shake us and to remind us that we're in a much greater battle than we ever give it credit for? Lord, today as we open your word, our endeavor is to know you more. Would you help us by your spirit and through your word to do just that? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The series, the sermon series that we're going through today is, uh, in the last couple weeks, is a series I'm I'm titling Knowing God. Uh, based in part on the book by J.I. Packer, though not at all entirely based on that book. There are selections of that book which I find incredibly refreshing and enlivening. Other sections, not so much. Um, but, but from that book was inspired a little bit of a series on what it means to know God. Not just know about Him. Not just uh, read the scriptures to know uh, things about God, but rather to know him personally, intimately, to be in relationship with God. What does it mean to be in relationship with God? Knowing God is an incredibly important undertaking for us. In Habakkuk 2.4 at the top of your outline, we understand now why it is such an incredibly important undertaking. For Habakkuk says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That will be throughout all of the universe. The knowledge of the glory of God will come to pass. It's only a matter of time. And Jesus said in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so Jesus recognized that in the gift of eternal life that he gives to us by faith in him, that that gift, when you consider its nature, when you consider what exactly is eternal life, it is heaven, yes, it is perpetual life with God, yes, but ultimately at its core, at its essence, Jesus said in John 17, 3, that eternal life is this, to know God, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom the Father has sent. That's the essence of eternal life. That's what we will be doing for all of eternity. And so it's good now in this life to get a little bit of a head start. Last week we looked at a topic in which uh, we're going a little bit more topically in this uh, portion of the series. And last week we looked at the topic of the fact that God knows us exhaustively. He knows everything about us. And that that knowledge, once we come to grips with it, once we come to grips with the fact that God knows everything about us, not just intellectually that we come to grips with that, but in our heart, that we realize he knows everything. He knows not just every word and every action. He knows every thought. He knows every secret. He knows the things I'm ashamed of. He knows the things I don't tell anyone. He knows everything about me. He knows me 
exhaustively. And why did we spend time on that topic? Because as we begin the quest, the endeavor to know God more deeply, it begins with the knowledge that he knows everything about you. That you can't hide from him. There's nothing that you can stow away and keep from him as if you were to hide something uh, under a box. He knows it. He's already found it. He knew it before you even made it a secret. And yet he still pursues you relentlessly with his love and with his grace. And so the, the, the knowledge of God begins with an awareness that God is still pursuing me. Me. Despite all the things I know that are in here. Wow. God is still pursuing me despite all the things that I know are actually in here that I don't like to talk about. That motivates us to know that God knows me exhaustively. But getting to know him, that's, that's, that's a whole other question now. For I cannot know him fully. I will continue to learn something new about God every day for all of eternity. My knowledge of God will forever be growing and increasing. The scriptures attest to that fact. And so for some people, they might throw up their hands and say, well, how can I possibly know God? Uh, I can't possibly wrap my mind around him, around all that, that, that is to know about him. And you might get discouraged. You might be uh, disillusioned yourself about, well, if, if I can't, you know, I, th- I think I know my spouse pretty well. Or I think I know my kids pretty well. But boy, boy, the Lord, he's just, he's too much. How can I possibly know him? You might get discouraged. I I understand that and I recognize that. And it can be discouraging as we begin an endeavor to know God more intimately. But you know, learning new things about the one you love, learning new things about the one who loves you is always very, very exciting. The mystery is what's invigorating. When you're when you think back, those of you who are married, to the time in which you were dating, you were courting your wife or husband, you know, you look back at the mystery, what you didn't know about them. And every day, every date, every moment together, there was something new to learn. That's how it is with you seeking after the Lord. There is something new to learn. You've not figured it out. There's still mystery there. And that mystery, it can be surprising. It, it can bring out great wonder in you. Uh, just the other day, we were, you know, Casey and I, we, we love learning new things about our kids. And uh, every time they open their mouth, there's something new coming out of it. We, we're learning something new about Bennett and Mallory and Amelia. Well, not so much Amelia. She just kind of squawks. But uh, every time Bennett in particular opens his mouth... We just, we just start laughing at some of the things he says. Just the other day, uh, he was in the car. We were driving home from a, a birthday party that he had had. We had uh, taken uh, some friends to the, the Lego store, and he had this wonderful birthday at the Lego store. And as we were driving back in the car, Mallory was poking him, poking him, poking him, poking him, just kind of prodding him, pinching him. And he says, that doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt. And then finally she kind of grabbed him just a little too hard. I pinched him a little too much. And he said, oh, 
Oh, good grief. What a way to finish my birthday, getting attacked by my sister. And we just, Casey and I, we just burst out laughing. We just like couldn't believe this thing's coming out of his mouth, you know. We're getting to know Bennett. What makes him tick? What makes him laugh? What makes him cry? What he likes? What he doesn't like? And every time the kid opens his mouth, we're laughing in wonder. The mystery of it all. Guess what? Inasmuch as our children are sometimes a mystery to us, and it is delightful to learn about them. The Lord God is a mystery for you and for me. And if you would but put attention and devotion and time to seeking Him out, you would begin to delight and marvel and wonder at the new things you learn about Him every day. That's what we're looking at today. Knowing God, part two. The title of this message is Awe, Fear, Peace, and Rest. Awe, Fear, Peace, and Rest. First, on your outline, I want to make mention of this. And I don't, I don't use this word lightly at all. Number one, God is awesome. God is awesome. And meditations upon Him should begin and end with His overwhelming greatness. God is awesome. Meditations upon Him should begin and end with His overwhelming greatness. Now we use the word awesome so lightly in this culture. That was awesome. Wow, that was great. That was awesome. We use it like so flippantly. But really, friends, the word awesome is, should be only reserved for someone like God. The word awesome means to be amazing. It means to be breathtaking. It means to be astonishing. It means to be wonderful, surprising, marvelous. God is awesome. Psalm 143, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And 147.5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Turn with me, if you would, to Job 26. We're going to be in our Bibles flipping through, so grab a Bible if you don't have one. If you don't have one and you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures, you can grab that pew Bible in front of you and you can turn to page 280. 280 in your pew Bible. Job chapter 26 And I want to read here a section of Job 26 in which we read about the awesomeness of God. Job 26, beginning in verse 5. Job 26, beginning in verse 5. This is Job speaking. He's speaking about the Lord. And I'm going to read all the way from 5 to 14. It's a wonderful section of the scriptures. Job speaks and he says this. He says, The dead tremble. Those under the waters and those inhabiting them, Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. He, that is God, stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. 
He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Now note this verse 14 well. Note this. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? The north, the earth, the water, the clouds, the throne room of heaven, the horizon over the waters... Light, dark, stirring up the sea, adorning the heavens, piercing the serpent. And Job says, and all of these things, all of these great and awesome and mighty things that we can say about our God are the mere edges, the periphery. It is like the the very edge of a blanket. And we could talk about so much more, Job says. These are the mere edges I have just skimmed the surface. I have just told you an inch worth of what I could tell you about God. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? God is awesome. And meditations upon him should begin and end with his overwhelming greatness. A.W. Tozer writes, and I want you to also uh, take a couple notes down. It's a word that I want you to focus on in this quote. A.W. Tozer in his great work, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this. Worship is pure, or it is base, that is is lowly. It's it's not good. So here we go. Worship is pure, or it is base, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. I'll read it again. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. You should have written down two words there, thoughts and thoughts. And the reason why I had you write it twice is because that is the essence of what Tozer is getting to here in this quote. He says, look, our worship, our ability to honor God to praise Him, to praise Him in a way that is due Him, that is appropriate to Him, that is is becoming of Him, our ability to worship well is based on whether or not we have a high, is based on whether we have a high view of God. If we have a high view of God, Tozer says, you will worship Him. If you have a low view of God, he says your worship will be base. It will be empty. It will be fruitless. And he goes on to say in the next line there, he says, I don't think there's an error in doctrine. 
or a failure in applying Christian ethics, that is, in living the Christian life, that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. That is to say, when we're not thinking rightly about Him, it will end in poor doctrine, it will end in poor practice, we will become empty shells with no hope in us. So necessary, he writes, to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her morality declines with it. That first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. The psalmist said, as we learned last week, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Such knowledge of God is too wonderful for me. And friends, it is that high view of God that we must maintain if we are to begin the endeavor to know him more intimately. You can read your Bible all you want, and it's important to do so. You can pray all you want, and it's important to do so. You can come and attend and participate in church all you want, and it's important to do so. But if you have a low view of God, you will not draw near to Him. If your view of God is stunted, is small, is limited, then you will not grow near to Him. Because you need to look up and recognize how magnificent He is. You need to read words like Job wrote in Job 26, and at the end of which you need to say, and I have just skimmed the surface of the one that I call Lord. God is awesome. And as we endeavor to know God more deeply, if we are not met with an overwhelming sense of His magnificence, then we are probably not thinking upon Him as we ought. But when we do feel that sense of His immense greatness it will quite naturally lead us to an awareness of something else about God. And that is that we should fear God. Once a man rightly reckons God's awesomeness, that same man will next become conscious of just how much he is to revere and fear God as the almighty king of kings. And that brings us to point number two this morning. God is to be feared. Feared. His greatness should cause our heads to bow and our knees to bend in utter humility before Him. God is to be feared. His greatness should cause our heads to bow and our knees to bend in utter humility before Him. You think of the testimony of scriptures, right? You see in Exodus chapter 3, Moses meets God, the burning bush. And what does it say in Exodus 3? It says that he was afraid of God. Turn over to Isaiah chapter uh, 5, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, and the prophet Isaiah is transported into the throne room of God. He sees magnificent things that he can hardly describe in words. And what does it say? What is his testimony? How does he respond in the moment of being faced with the awesomeness of God? He says, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. 
I dwell in the midst of, an, of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Moses, Isaiah, many others that were faced with the greatness of God. They bowed their heads, they bent their knee in utter humility before him. And that is the response of a person who has rightly recognized the awesomeness of God. That's the next step. How do we know him? We look at his awesomeness, his greatness, the wonder and mystery of God. We marvel and meditate upon it. We read stories of his awesomeness. We read about his awesome and mighty attributes. We meditate on those attributes. How do we know him? We go from the awesomeness to an awareness that he is to be feared and revered. To bow our heads and bend our knee in awe of him. Turn over to Psalm 76. The next book over from Job, if you uh, have your Bible still open. Psalm 76, if you're having a pew Bible, you can turn to page 310. Psalm 76, I want to read all of it. This is a psalm of Asaph, who is most likely one of uh, David's uh, musicians or, or poets. Uh, he was a, a worship leader of sorts for David. He writes in Psalm 76 a beautiful, majestic psalm of the greatness of God and of how that greatness lends itself to man and woman showing God fear and reverence. Take a look at Psalm 76. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem, that is Jerusalem, also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and and sword of battle. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They've sunk into their sleep. None of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a dead sleep. You yourself are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Boy, I love that last verse. He shall cut off the spirit of of earthly princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. I cannot help but but think of uh, what is happening in Syria today as I read that. And other parts of the world, much of the Middle East, we read in our newspapers, uh, rather our computer screens, uh, we read of horrific human rights violations 
that is taking place in Syria, Iran, Egypt, Libya, and many other places around the world. Horrific human rights violations, chemical weapons being used on the innocent. Violations by leaders of organized government. Human rights violations by supposedly the rebels that are fighting against them on all sides. And what can possibly deter them? What can possibly deter Bashar al-Assad of of Syria? What can possibly deter some of the rebels who are, are fighting back with just as much nastiness and gruesomeness? What can deter them from their present course of action? Suppose we bomb them, some say. That'll deter them. Let's bomb them. And that will stop both sides from continuing these atrocities. Others say, no, 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 no. We need to have closed-door diplomatic negotiations. That will deter them. That'll stop all sides and bring about peace. That'll cease the atrocity. As for me, I, I have no idea between those two options, none whatsoever. But there is a third option. Would that the evil men in Syria come to the knowledge of God in heaven. Would that the evil men in Syria recognize that there is a God in heaven who is keeping a tally of their gruesome acts and will one day, either in this life or in the next, but will certainly do, will one day repay them in proportion to their earthly deeds. Would that the men in Syria, the evil men in Syria, come to that knowledge, a real knowledge of that, what would happen then? You see, friends, because until a man knows that everything he's done, until a man knows that everything he's done will be made known to God and has already been made known to God. And that those things that he has done, that there will be a a reckoning for those things. Until a man recognizes that God knows what he's done and that there will be a reckoning of those things, such a man is unlikely to change his present course of action. But the scriptures testify that everything will be made known. That God knows every intent of man's heart. That nothing is secret before him. That everything is laid bare. Turn over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Actually, it's listed there on your outline if you'd like it on the back side. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. This is a story of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. He says, Luke the narrator writes this in verse 1, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware, just as Jesus speaking, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you've spoken in the dark, it'll be heard in the light. 
And what you've spoken in the ear in inner rooms, in, in secret, it'll be proclaimed on the housetops. Verse 4, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear God, who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Would that the evil men in Syria know this intimately. What would happen then? Would that we know this intimately, not, not acknowledging in the intellect. I know you already do that. I do that. I already know intellectually what Jesus just said. He just told me he knows everything. I learned that in kindergarten. But it has taken a very great while for me, and I think for most, much, much of us, to read Luke 12, 1 through 5 with our heart and to recognize that it's all, it's all known. It's all laid bare. He knows it. He knows what you've said in secret. He knows what you've done. He knows the thing you're most ashamed of. It's already before him. And that, friends, is reason to fear him, to revere him, to honor him with, our, with all of our being, to recognize that he knows all of it. And we will answer to him. Proverbs 1, seven says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To begin the quest to know God, it starts with fear. I would argue that that fear is motivated by an awareness of his awesomeness. When we know how great he is, we begin to recognize that we are held accountable before this great and mighty God. And when we begin to recognize the fear of the Lord in us, that he is worthy of all of our attention, that there is nothing to fear that what man can do to me. Who cares what man can do to me? He is the only one whom I am accountable to. That that fear of the Lord Solomon writes, it's the beginning of knowledge. That's when you begin to get to know him. And so the Lord asks, in Jeremiah 5, it's listed on your outline, the Lord's asking, this is, this is what he asked Judah, and now he's asking it of you and me. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not, do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? But this people has a defiant and a rebellious heart. They've revolted. They've departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God. So it was 2,600 years ago, so it is today. The same stubbornness that affected the people of Judah, though God was urging them time and again, look at my greatness, look at my awesomeness. 
don't you recognize it is high time to fear and honor me? And yet 2,600 years ago, the same as today, we are nonchalant in our reverence toward God. We don't even think about it really. The fear of the Lord, we don't use that terminology today in 21st century American evangelicalism. That doesn't play well. Uh, A church that speaks of the fear of the Lord is a church that, boy, that that church is not going to go places. You can't talk like that. People want to hear the nice things about God. They don't want to hear fear the Lord. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's right, we say. That's right. It is a fearful thing for pagans and sinners to fall into the hands of of the living God. It is a fearful thing for the world and for those evil Syrians and all those evil men around the world. They will get their day of reckoning, we say, and we celebrate that. God is to be feared. Vengeance is His. They'll find, they'll, they'll, they'll get their, they'll get what is due them. But let us not forget that so much of what I've just read, in fact, all of, just about all of what I've just read, about the fear of the Lord. Do you know whom these texts were directed to? Do you know the kinds of people Uh, who were the supposed recipients of Luke 12, of Jeremiah 5, of Hebrews 10, another text that we've already read. Do you know who who the recipients were of these texts, of these admonitions to fear the Lord? It was to the people of God that they were written. In Jeremiah 5, The Lord directs his words to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people. Fear the Lord. You are God's people. And I'm telling you again, fear the Lord. In Luke 12, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking about the Pharisees. He's directing his comments to the disciples, but he's speaking about the Pharisees, the keepers of the Mosaic law. And ask a common first century Jew, what kind of man knows God? They would have said, oh, the Pharisee, of course. The Pharisees were the highest in the religious echelon of those kinds of people that knew God most intimately. And yet Jesus says in Luke 12, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do but I will show you whom you should fear fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell yes I say to you fear him Jesus is speaking to the supposed people of God and Luke Hebrews 10 take note of the author's citation of Deuteronomy 32 in which it says the Lord will judge his people It is the people of God who are in view in Hebrews 10. Now we could show a great many other scriptures in which the fear of the Lord is also an admonition given to the pagan and the sinner. I could show you a great many of those verses. But we selected these three today to demonstrate to you and to me that Christians, that the people of God, 
that those of us who are comfortable, we come on Sunday, we've recognized the Lord, we've believed on Christ in faith for everlasting life, where we've been in the community, we've been in the faith, we've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, we chose these scriptures today that we might remember that even as God's people, you are never, ever to get comfortable, to get lackadaisical with the knowledge that you are to fear the Lord. You're to fear Him in the morning. You're to fear Him in the noontime. You're to fear Him at evening. You're to fear Him at all times. You've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus. By virtue of Christ's righteousness, you've been born again. You've received eternal life. Heaven is a guaranteed inheritance to you. Guaranteed. You are immune from the fires of hell. But you will stand judgment before you will stand in judgment before Christ. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You will stand up before him on the last day. You are not immune from this judgment. Paul speaks of this judgment in 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And then he writes this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. We're all going to appear before Christ. You're immune from some things. You're immune from hell. By virtue of Christ's righteousness over you. By faith in him. Hell is not going to be your destination, you who are a believer. But you are not immune from the judgment seat of Christ. Unless you think that that judgment is small, I encourage you to pay heed to what Jesus says in Luke 12. To pay heed to what God says to his people in Jeremiah 5. To pay heed to what the author of Hebrews says to the same God-fearers in Hebrews 10. To pay heed to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. That that day of judgment is coming. And that we, in this life, Though immune from hellfire, we are not to rest on our laurels and say, ah, I have fire insurance now. No. We are to remain vigilant in the awareness of the great awesomeness of God that lends itself into fear and reverence before Him. You say, Pastor, now you've got me worried. Well, good. I was hoping to get your attention a little bit. Actually, no. God is hoping to get your attention. He wants you to meditate on his awesomeness. He wants that meditation to trickle down into a fear and reverence of him. You say, well, I don't want to think about these things. These things are foreign to me. I'm not used to thinking about these things. I'm not used to meditating on the greatness of God. That's not something I do on a daily basis. You need to start doing that. I don't think about, the, I don't think about fearing God. I, th- I like to think about how much God loves me. Guess what? 
you need to add in to your understanding of God the fact that you must be fearing Him every day. J.I. Packer writes, to get to know another person, you have to commit yourself to his company and interests and be ready to identify yourself with his concerns. Without this, your relationship with him can only be superficial and flavorless. Now, J.I. Packer there was writing generically, but he later on in the book goes to tie that quote directly into our relationship with God. He says, do you want a superficial and a flavorless relationship with God? Then just focus on all the flowery elements then just tune your heart to the love and the grace and keep aside any talk of fear of God's great and mighty wonder. But he says if you want a genuine intimacy with God, if you want a genuine, thriving, healthy relationship, a balanced relationship, one that does not emphasize one element over another, then you are to commit yourself to God's interests and be ready to identify yourself with His concerns. God wants you to know Him, but it begins with meditations upon His greatness. Those meditations lend themselves to an awareness of how much He's to be feared, that we will stand before Him as judge, But that that fear is not an end in and of itself, not at all. Because unlike others, unlike other world religions, I should say, whose God is only to be feared, our God, Jehovah, offers peace and rest to those who show him the honor that is due his name. We will close with a reading from Psalm 103. Please turn in the middle of your Bibles to Psalm 103, verses 8 to 18. Page 319 on your pew Bible. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 18. We start with the greatness of God. That meditation results in a fear and a reverence of God. But it doesn't end there. You don't have to walk through life just trembling and scared. No. Psalm 103, verses 8 and following. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever, because he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he punished us according to our iniquities. As high as... For as the heavens are high above the earth, he is high. But so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. As for man... His days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness, it passes to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments 
to do them. Friends, three times in Psalm 103, three times David declares that if you would fear him, he will show you mercy. If you would revere him, he will give you grace. If you would honor him in the way that you are supposed to, by meditating on his greatness daily, by letting those meditations penetrate your heart with a fear and a deep reverence of him, if you were to do that in your daily walk with the Lord, the psalmist declares that that fear and reverence that you show will translate into mercy and grace for you. We don't talk about the fear of the Lord so that people will walk around scared. We talk about having fear of God so that people will walk around with mercy and grace. Meditate on his awesomeness. Let those meditations become fear and reverence in you. And as you give unto God that fear and reverence that he desires as a sacrifice to him, he will look upon you afresh with new grace and mercy. You'll experience him. You will know him in a way that you have not known him before. Heavenly Father, O Lord God, we declare that we have been slack in thinking about your greatness. We declare that we have been slow and sluggish to consider the teaching that we are to fear you. That's not language we like to use in this day and age, Lord. That's language that we try to avoid, actually. And yet, Lord, it's, in, it's embedded and it's inherent throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The fear of God is perhaps one of the most notable topics in all of Scripture. And God, we know it so very little. And so, Lord, we're asking your Spirit to help us to know how to fear and reverence you. Not to do it intellectually, we've already done that, but to do it with a heart that is wide open and ready for your spirit to penetrate and to work in fresh grace and mercy as you receive from us exactly what you were looking for all along. We love you, Lord. Help us to recognize how great and mighty you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.